the whole purpose of Sundays with Stories is to provide alternative visions of addiction. We hear a straight recovery story all the time. And none of them is true. There isn't one straight recovery story. Um, and if anybody wants to learn anything from what we're talking about, if somebody tries to tell them or sell them a straight recovery story, just ask them a few questions and immediately it'll turn into something else, something different, less successful, perhaps more existential, less 12 steppy. The whole 12 step paradigm is uh, it's a fantasy that virtually never occurs. And uh, we go a little bit out of our way to find stories that definitely don't fit into the 12-step template. Um, and the kinds of stories we favor are <clears throat> people who faced adversity, which is an awful lot of people, who haven't maybe told all about it, but have fought through it on their own. And although we have a double-edged response to it, some of those people are put down for not going through the standard 12-step model. When they don't conform, they're rejected. They can't tell their story. Or uh, worse things happen to them. And they, they face more abuse, uh, ironically, if supposedly they faced trauma in the past. So you have a story that you are going to navigate us through, which has some of those elements. Why don't you take us there? You know, I've been a fan of comedy for a long time, but I've really been getting into it, maybe in a way that most people don't enjoy comedy. But I think with podcasting coming out, you get to explore whatever someone's niche is. There are all these long form conversations. I mean, look at us where you could people could sort of explain their craft. And so I'm really interested in the craft of a comedian and, and how they got to where they are and how they think about the world. So the comedian Mark Normand is, um, is a guy who's trending and rising in popularity now and the reason he's popular well he's been working hard at it a long time and he's funny he's been in the circuit a while so he was ready for something to happen but eventually i'm going to start at the end first he pitched a uh, comedy special a one-hour comedy special to netflix at netflix being it's like the same thing as having an hbo comedy special a while ago or a 30-minute comedy central special whenever they were doing that and they rejected it. They didn't think it would be right for their audience. So we made his own. He did, got camera people. He hired am, amateur cameramen to do different angles. And he just worked and pieced it together, totally piecemeal, until he got one full show's worth of material and put, put it out in YouTube. And this was during the coronavirus pandemic. And ever since then, he's surpassed, I think, the number of views Johan Hari's gotten on his um, Drugs no. aren't the problem. Kind of, I think so. It was like uh, it was, number one or something, or, or there must have been a few people who were pretty big. I mean, he's he's in the tens of millions of views for that comedy special. I thought it was only seven million, but that was just on his channel. And then other people play the same thing on different channels, and he has millions on there too. So he, it's a guy who's sort of uh, he's, he's a self-powered machine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about his backstory and anything I say here is nothing that you can't hear him talk about. He puts it in a funny perspective. He takes all these things and makes a joke out of it. But I thought it was interesting and very salient apropos all the things we talk about. So when he was growing up, he was in Louisiana. And as long as he can remember, 
his family lived in what was called the French Quarter of Louisiana, and it was an all-black neighborhood. His dad always wanted to, they weren't rich, they were like blue-collar people, his mom and dad. And he had a lot of troubles growing up, so he always wanted to be in this position that he could at least look rich or like look like, like he was doing well, even if he wasn't. Now we so we spent... No, no, it's an all-white family in an all-black neighborhood, which is, which made him stand out. He doesn't, he doesn't really, he didn't really feel that way until he got old enough to understand that that was, that he was sort of different in that neighborhood. The one thing he remembered, it wasn't like the white or black thing that made him stand out. It was that there was this old rundown shack of a mansion that you might hear about in like a horror story or something or see about it in a horror film. It was an enormous house, and it was a mansion, but it was just completely broken, holes all over the walls, and the plumbing didn't work. They didn't have, you know, it took a while to get running water, and so it was a cheap place. I mean, it was the same price as any of the other houses there, probably cheaper, but it looked like they were rich. So it was a part of town where people were, let's say, fighting for resources, and, and, that, and those parts, you know, they did whatever they could to manage. So people were constantly, I mean, he remembers being less than eight years old and people were robbing his house all the time. He actually, he, rem he said he remembers being eight years old and laying in bed and knowing that sure as the sun rises, that you're just going to have times where your house is being robbed. It's almost like his house is being robbed as sure as like sometimes the toilet's not going to flush or something like that. So he just remembers sitting, laying there thinking, huh, someone's definitely below me right now robbing the house. And that was just sort of kind of became a normal fit. No one liked it, but it became a normal thing. He quote, he says in a podcast with Theo Vaughn, he said, we were known as the white family in the mansion. We got robbed so often that my dad installed this alarm system that would go off pretty often at like two in the morning. I was eight and this thing's going off. And I just thought, oh, weird. Somebody like in my living room, somebody below our house rifling through all our shit. He could come up right now and hurt or kill me. Huh. So he said it was a skittish way to grow up. He'd come, yeah, they'd come home a lot. Attention. I mean, Gabor Mate might call that a trauma. Right. So, uh, by the way, you can start counting trauma points as you go along. Like that, what was that show? Uh, the Good Life, the good, the good Place, where they sort of kind of count your points. But we can count trauma points as we go along. Like, is this guy traumatized? He said it was a skittish way to grow up. I'd come home, door was wide open. We just all knew we'd been robbed again. And it just felt really violating and never felt comfortable. Always uneasy. Always feeling like, oh, well, we could get robbed now. So eventually they called the cops. This is already, you can see how they could make a comedy out of this if it only weren't true. They called the cops so often that the cops decided, okay, look, we're going to send, you're always calling us. We're going to send two people to just sit there and wait for your house to get robbed. Then they'll just catch, if it's one person, then they'll at least catch the one guy. He said, okay, we're going to stake, stake out in your living room until it gets here. And he said he remembered, he was kind of excited. He was thinking, well, this is going to probably happen again, and they're going to be here, and I get to watch this guy being caught kind of uh, in a sick way, like really, you know, thrilled about this. But it was the one time, it's like when you bring your car to a mechanic because it's making a noise, and then as soon as you get it in the mechanic's hands, it stops making the noise. No one broke in. But he woke up and the, the officers had eaten all his food Maybe the and had everything up. up. The guy knew that the cops were in there and didn't come in. Right. They could, it obviously could be that. I'm not going to break into the place where the cops are. 
he said they were playing clothes or something, but anyway, it didn't work out. They tried this approach and it just didn't work out. And uh, he just remembers that the, the cops took all his stuff, you know, sprawling out on their couch, watching TV, eating all his food. He said, ah, oh, it's like we've been robbed again. The cops just came in and robbed us. Um, so there's his childhood, a tense childhood where they're in a place they could barely afford, even though it was run down and being broken into and stuff stolen from them. You were going to say something. Well, of course, people tell stories like this all the time. And they get used to those experiences. And it's funny, you know, you can label it as trauma, but it's the adaptability and the new normalcy for people. And it's just great to hear her making jokes about it. Of course, the classic version of that, I might get the title wrong, is the glass castle or the ice castle. Yeah, glass uh, castle, yeah, yeah. I would I could I read that book continuously. <clears throat> she um you know was brought up her father was an alcoholic who went from job to job but a very talented engineer. She had a brother and a sister and then another younger sister and they would live someplace until they got kicked out of it because their parents didn't pay the rent. And you know she thought that was normal. And um one one night I mean, there's some famous stories in it that can just bring you to tears. Um, it, it was her birthday and her father said, well, I've got a very special present for you. Mm. And he took her out into the desert and he named the star after her. So that star has your name. And then they commiserated and said, do you realize some poor kid is getting some kind of a stupid toy for his or her birthday? And you're getting a star named after you. And you know, <laughs> everything about the story, it was, um, uh, she, before she wrote the book, which is the greatest thing she could ever do, she was embarrassed about it and she was afraid to tell her actual story. But uh, I'll, I'll just tell one last part of the story. She, she, when she was a junior in high school and her sister was a senior, they moved to New York by themselves. And that was a, you know, an upgrade in their lives. And um, she finished high school in New York and she got a job at a local Brooklyn newspaper and she loved it. And finally her editor said, you know, there were better writing jobs than this. <laughs> and she thought it was great and said, why don't you have to go to college for that? And the guy says, well, maybe you should think about going to college. And she says, how could I afford to go to college? And then the guy says, well, they have these things called scholarships, you know? So she applied to Barnard and got in Columbia and then she became who she is. So, you know what? It's just amazing how people power through these experiences. They don't, they don't feel deprived in a strange way, they adjust to it. And then in some cases, they're even more rocket fuel to go ahead, like this guy, Norman. Who, so they turn him down to Netflix. All right, I'll have to make my own TV, my own uh, comedy special. He, um, very well put. I read that book after you mentioned it, by the way. You came to Vermont and you were talking about it. And I, I think I'd seen the movie, but the book, it's worth I reading. I know they measured up. There's just, well, I, are you going to tell the story about how, uh, 
is about his role model and recovering. His yes, 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 yes. Come, coming up. Yeah. So he, I mean, they, um, they, he's just still in this tension. I mean, growing up, he just, they just remained in the tension that sometimes people are going to rob them. I think I'm not imagining this. I think one time people actually came in and they tied them up and, and took, they were looking for, all right, where are the goods? And there's just this old crappy VCR and they were angry. They're angry at them that they didn't have anything good in there and left them in there. And I'm not sure how they got uh, rescued or broke free. So that's not resolved. Meanwhile, the renovations needed to make that house livable were more than his father anticipated that he could afford. So both his father and his mother started working and they were working all the time. And that meant leaving him at home. So not only were, was he in this constant state of hyper-awareness or vigilance about something that might happen that's bad and he felt like he couldn't control it, now he didn't have really available parents either. Not that they were bad, they just weren't there. They were. They did manage to hire someone who could, um, with for a reasonable price, take care of Mark. And I'm not sure if he had siblings. Um, and the person that they hired, it was. Uh, I don't know if transvestite is the right term. Forgive me if I'm not being um, politically correct about it. But it's, uh, it was a man. Exactly. What's that? Wasn't gender conforming exactly. Right. Right. He dressed as he dressed in a dress and you know, wore makeup and a wig and high heels and, but he was a large black man and he would stay at home with Mark and kind of watch him, make sure he got things done. And it was funny, Mark Norman was saying that, there's a quote here, he said, funny enough, my nanny is the one who taught me to do everything since his parents weren't around. He wound up teaching me how to fight, how to put the seat up, how to go on a date with a girl, taught me how to work with cars. My parents were always working because the house is so big, it stopped, we stopped being able to afford it. He said, even though we had roaches and mice, we didn't even have lights in the house. We just had these mechanic lights in our rooms. So he did start looking up to this person as a role model. And he remembers that one time on his way home, this is kind of a perspective changer for him in an interesting way. He was riding his bike and then there were three sort of thuggish people around him that or bullyish kind of people around him, around his age, I think they were older kids, that wanted to steal his bike. And so they started rubbing their tires against his and surrounding him, saying, hey, let us check out your bike. And he tried to pedal on, but they stopped him, grabbed it, pushed him off the bike, ran away, taunted him, and left. And this wasn't the first time it happened. He'd been, he'd been robbed of stuff before on the streets. He had face-to-face -face encounters beyond just the people breaking in. So he got home, and the, the nanny said to him, oh, what's wrong? And he tried to be avoidant about it, said just nothing. And eventually he got it out of him. He said, well, what's going on? So he told him the story about the bike. Just get in the van, we're gonna go find it. So he was just thinking, all right, I'm riding with my nanny and there's a man in a dress and a van out to try to avenge the, the bike that I had stolen from me, from these people. And they wound up, they drove around for a while and they, uh, they found the people. He, so they looked and, he thought he spotted the bike that the nanny did. He said, that's yours. And so he, they found these guys on a stoop. They were trying to sort of reformat it, I guess, to kind of strip it down and put different parts on it to disguise it for when they sell it. And he came up to them in his dress and high heels, said, that's not your bike. And they were just laughing at him, you know, 
calling him names and you know, being terrible to him. And he said, all right, what are you going to do about it? And he went out, pushed him out of the way, grabbed him, put his, Mark Norman said he put his enormous hands on the handle of the bike and just looked at him in the eye, grabbed it. And said, That's what I thought. And put it back in the van, took it, and then they went home. There's nothing, you know, it's not like a, necessarily a value story, although you can make an argument for it. But what he got out of that was a change in perspective that there are ways that he hadn't really thought of that you can control situations. Um, you have mo maybe more, uh, more control over something or there are more things you can do to even out a situation than, than maybe you could imagine. And he said that that sort of led him into the kind of work ethic that he now has. He's a very successful comedian and he's always working and he's always imagining that even though he's in some certain place, he's sort of just kind of naively imagining that he could go further than he is. And he says he relates that all back to kind of moments that he's had with this person, that being kind of a central focus in his memory. People have, um, somehow out of childhood, you have to emerge from childhood with agency. And there's two rough models for doing that. In one, you're kind of living on your own and you develop agencies. We kind of frown on that. And it has a lot of possible drawbacks. And then the other, your parents are perfectly good at teaching you agency. And you emerge as a very uh, independent and self-respecting person. But people are having a lot of trouble with that second model, the part where your parents are very capable and competent and they bring you up and they teach you to have agency. That's, that turns out to be a little trickier than we thought where childhood used to have a lot more. And I know you're, you're talking um, to a person who's famous for burrowing through that issue and you will have, you have a podcast, we've had a podcast on that. Um, how do you, as a competent person, bestow competence on somebody else? And of course, there's all these, it used to be called helicopter parenting, but it's an incredibly difficult project. There's just an article in Times today, how to be a you know, competent parent without traumatizing your child as though, mm. I don't know, you need a special manual for that. And so to some, he, and there are two answers. One is somewhere you've got to find a role model. And it unfortunately might not be your parents, which is this story. When they look at kids who've been abused or had negative experiences, but who end up whole, they find an alternative role model. I don't, which may or may not, I don't know how easy or hard that is. They, at least his parents hired a role model for him. Mm. And, um, the other way, I'm going back to the Glass Castle, their mother was really inept. Their father was an alcoholic, but very talented. Their mother was really inept and she got a teaching job. And she, her mother had no idea about how to deal with everything. So she and her older sister, who was only a year or so older, started grading all those papers. They, they were like in middle school or high school. They took over being the teacher by taking all the papers the kids gave their mother and grading them because they needed her to, they couldn't have the job and they needed her to have the job. And so, you know, 
you don't recommend the kids take over the parenting role, but that's how it worked in this case. And there, it's funny, one of the best stories, they ended up living, I think in West Virginia, that's where their father came from, which was another whole trauma. But at one point they lived with their mother's family in Houston and somebody stole their bike, one of the kids' bikes. And she and her sister, her mother said, oh, I think I know who stole the bike. And they went down the block to the house where she thought they stole the bike. And her mother started doing a war dance outside and putting a hex on the house. And then she said, um, that should do it. And, you know, of course, the, right, the woman who wrote the book saying, what? What was that? And the next day, the bike was in front of their house. <laughs> so as incompetent as their mother was, there's something to learn from everybody. You've got to keep your eyes open, you know? He, uh, in that line, he said, this is a quote from Mark Norman about that incident. He said, to me then forever, I always thought Enos, that was the person, that was the man's name, the nanny. I thought of Enos as embodying a man. He's kind of looking for like, what do you, how do you take control of things? How do you make things work for you? That's what a man is. I used to think about my life and these bullies and these hard times and that they were unstoppable and that I could never beat them. And then I watched my nanny just sort of out of character, out of typical character, beat the very bullies I thought were just unbeatable, changed my perspective. By the way, I didn't even put this in the, I have a document in front of me. He also wet the bed into his teens. Doesn't know what that was about. The doctors didn't really know what it was about, but he would go to sleepovers and wet the bed. Like the one solace he got away from his home and some other safe place with people from school. He was just always so embarrassed. So he had all these things that he felt like were out of his control that he couldn't deal with. Uh, as he got into an older teenager, he started thinking, all right, maybe I can do, maybe I can take some crazy chances. He, um, first of all, he became a comedian. And for whatever goofy reason, he decided, I'm just going to keep this up. I'm going to write. I'm going to do comedy. I'm going to be like a Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill. Even though it, like I'm getting $50 a week right now, I, I know I can do it. I'm not funny yet, but I bet I could be. And he just kept doing it. He really enjoyed it. And so he got odd jobs along the way and was able to support himself, moved out. And he finally got a little bit of a circuit that he was doing so he could barely scrape by. You know, It's like a minimum wage in total gig that he could have a little crappy apartment. And he was doing comedy in uh, New York City circuit. And he was drinking a lot because that's what you go to comedy clubs and musicians could commiserate. You go to, you go to these clubs if you're not established yet and you get paid in like, you know, some very small amount of money plus all the beer or liquor you can drink. And so he wound up having this style of, he was working, but it was really like, it was backbreaking work for nothing. And so he kind of forgot his own process after a while. Like, why am I doing this? And he would, have these hard nights and then he'd come back and he'd drink a lot and he would drink so much and he was he'd get blackout drunk and he said for a while there or he as he called it for a blip there i had a real problem like i was i forgot about why i was doing this thing in the first place and instead of enjoying any of the process i was just sort of drinking to forget it and i felt like it was something i just had to do and i couldn't do anything else so he just started making new he realized it and started making new connections seeing if he could make you know network with new people go to new places get bigger gigs try to take advantage of technology and put things online so people could see them 
And eventually, I mean, he kept running and doing it, taking care of himself. He talks about he became a little bit overweight. He was taking, he was eating all the free food, drinking all the beer, sleeping with women and not remembering it, things like that. And um, he remembers trying to take it a step at a time. So he went, all right, my health, I'm just going to go to the gym once a week. Like, I don't really want to go to the gym every day, but I bet if I go once a week, it'd be better than me doing nothing. And as far as food, he had all these weird ideas about how he could make these small changes in his life. And me, in the meantime, while he got his mind on, well, I already am doing something about this. So he didn't have to ruminate over the problem. He said he started really enjoying his craft a lot more and seeing it for what it was. And just every time he went around the world anywhere, he was looking for what's funny about this. What's an interesting way that I'm seeing this that I could re-explain to somebody else in a way that they hadn't thought to explain before. Which in a even way, I know that. sort of brought up to do in a way, because he had such right. a broad background. Right. You know, right. who has a giant, you know, cross-dressing nanny. Um, how, how did he think about, does he call himself an alcoholic or what is he, how does he describe that period? He's never called himself an alcoholic. I mean, unless it's as a like a really, uh, you know, one time offhanded joke. He doesn't call himself an alcoholic. He just said, yeah, for a while I was drinking way too much. And then he talks about how he, but he also puts that in with, you know, I was eating way too much. I was just not taking good care of myself. And he remembers that felt a little bit like it was tugging on what he wanted, tugging against what he wanted to do. So he we tried to figure out a way stories that stories like this about people who transition through addictions, you know, we mention them all the time, Drew Barrymore and uh, other people. Uh, by the way, we include the story of the Glass Castle. It's in our book, Behind You, Outgrowing Addiction. We didn't mention in our book, you know, for some reason, my mind just filed into it, a woman, a girl, with an impossible name, I'm sorry, wrote a book called A Drunken Girlhood. And for some reason, oh, yeah. she started drinking intensely, like when she was 13. And she went to Syracuse University and um, she was drunk the whole time. And she describes putting on makeup when you're drunk and what that's like. And, you know, the book caught a tremendous amount of attention, like, how was this girl abused? And, um, you know, what's college life like that she did this? Did you look up her name by any chance? Uh, yeah. Is it? I'm going to say it wrong, too, because I remember it's not uh, it's not phonetic the way it looks, but it's uh, Corinne Zielkakas. Spell it. The last thing, it's Corinne, it's K-O-R-E-N, and it's Z-A-I-L-C-K-A-S. For some reason, I remember the two consonants. You're pronouncing them both or something. but And so she graduated Syracuse and she got a job writing and she got a boyfriend and she stopped drinking and she has a website and people started abusing her because yeah. she never went to AA. Yeah. yeah. Said, when you're an alcoholic, nobody drinks from the time they're 13. All the theories of addiction say anybody who's relied on Al all that time, you're an alcoholic one way or the other. And then the way she said, she would respond, I just don't think of myself that way. And she's not as pop, Koren Zalikas. She's 
not popular now because she doesn't fit a niche. They, people like the story of a drunken girlhood. They don't like the story of, well, I stopped that. I grew up and I got a life. Just like her, did she stop drinking, I'm, by the way? I'm not I don't remember that she, She's not, I, I don't know if she became a moderate drinker. My, I think she might drink occasionally. Mark Norman talks about this period of his life that he was sort of just, you know, he was just working too hard. He wasn't having fun, but he was doing something he felt was necessary. And then it got to a point where he felt like, oh, I, I can't tell if I'm doing something that's necessary to build, you know, to build up or not, um, to build myself into who I want to be. But I know that when I'm not taking good care of myself, I'm hindering that process, even if I am doing it. So I've got to get something out of it. I've got to at least believe that I have that under control. So that was his mindset. Like my lifestyle needs to be such that I can spend my energy, my mental energy, feeling good about what I'm doing. And then I can, you know, make something of myself. That's another essential and, quality. Whatever trauma you have, if you retain an intact version of yourself as being a valuable person, well, first of all, you learn survival skills. Second of all, it's good to have a role model. And third of all, it, it's, you have to, somehow and as a parent you have to inspire in somebody an intact sense of themselves that they shouldn't be violated and people get that under the most remarkable circumstances if there's one parent that's um encouraging if there's one relative that's encouraging and maybe that's what the nanny did as well to teach you that you deserve to be respected and to you know not to be abused and that you can, and including your, by yourself, and you can evaluate your life in those terms. Well, I'm doing the wrong thing because I'm not, I'm harming myself or I'm not being good to myself. Something that really got him uh, some extra popularity. He was already doing bigger gigs than the comedian Amy Schumer saw him one night and thought, oh, you're hilarious. You, all right, you're kind of on the spot said, do you want to open for me? Do you have... How long do you have? Can you do 20 minute, 30 minute sets? All right, you you can open for me. So he went on the road with Amy Schumer. She's doing arenas. And so now he's got a little bit of uh, uh, recognition in these arenas. And then he started doing his own shows and nobody was showing up to the gigs and he had to do morning radio, a morning radio and morning TV. And he has this viral video. Maybe I'll put it up for so people can see it. I can't repeat anything on it because without the context, I just sound like a jerk. But basically, he sabotaged. One time, he just he went to uh, I don't know if it was Detroit or Chicago, uh, wherever it was. He uh, he was thinking, I'm so sick of waking up at four in the morning to advertise the place I'm playing to. And they're asking me these questions that they don't care. You know, it's one of those just like oh god, uh, pre-crafted, no one cares questions. So he just sabotaged it and made a mockery of the <laughs> mockery of the show. And uh, they were in, in good fun, but there was this woman interviewing him that I felt bad for because he would just make these extreme answers and be satirical and ironic about it. And uh, that actually got him, he was just being silly and just broke the format. That actually got him some fame. And um, so anyway, no, I had it didn't a all come like when I did quite a bit of TV. I write about it in my memoir, A Scientific Life on the Edge. I went on the Oprah show. And I sort of hijacked the show and started calling on people in the audience and doing what I just described to you. 
asking them questions about their stories and none of their stories were held up. And, you know, I, I broke the format of the show and ironically, Ethan Edelman had called me then. And before we ever met, he saw me on the Oprah show and his reaction was to react in horror, how I was sort of somewhat in conflict with a whole mass of people. And, um, but I saw it as a, a great th thrust and parry uh, pointing my point of view forward. And the, and the head of the National Council of Alcoholism was also on the show with me and he didn't say anything because he's a straight disease guy. Um, the only difference between me and Norman was that that wasn't a job recommendation for addiction work on my part. Right. His right. skill in handling and banding about and breaking the format, people would say, that works, you know, in the comedian role. Right. <laughs> um, what we discussed earlier was that none of his process was linear. You know, he doesn't have a recovery story. He doesn't say, oh, man, I hit my bottom and now I need to by the grace of God, what, he doesn't have one of those stories. He just remembers a period of his life when he felt like he wasn't healthy mentally or physically. And he talks about the whole gestalt. He doesn't talk about just drinking, even, although he mentions it. Funny, he still drinks. He still drinks and even makes jokes sometimes. He'll do a, he'll do a podcast with somebody and early in the day and talk about how he's hungover. I mean, so he's still, he's trying to have a good time and sometimes he even goes a little too far. He smokes marijuana from time to time, but what he says is, he's so focused on his work now, he's famous now. I mean, he's, he's one of the biggest comedians that there is, and this happened like seemingly overnight to an unaware audience, probably feels like a whole lifetime that event for him. He's so focused on it that he's not gonna let anything get in the way of his performing well. That matters to him so much. Like, am I, when I'm living my day-to-day -day life, am I enjoying it? Am I able to take it in and see it maybe differently than other people see it? You know, see the nuances and interactions with people and um, situations. And can I write about it? Can I, that which gives him joy. Like, can I take that situation and write about it in a way that if I deliver it to an audience, they will think it's fun. There's some hidden gem in there that but they're really going to laugh that at. That skill, I mean, that's his skill is packaging strange experiences and broadcasting. When you would would you say your life was nonlinear? I mean, this nonlinear thing may be more common than we encounter, wouldn't you think? Absolutely. It's one of the reasons why his story just resonated with me. And I think maybe one of the reasons why when I, I'm so interested in comedians and musicians and what their lives are like, because you kind of have to do it in a nonlinear way. If you're a gig kind of a person, you know, you kind of have to do, if you're really giving your all into the thing that you love, you have to figure out what that is and how you could possibly make that work. Because I remember from trying to make all my money just playing music for a little while, uh, people started to trying to do that, you know? <laughs> He's like, uh, $10 gigs here and there, and you can't, you know, it's hard to make a living. So yes, I think that that might be that the, the rule, not the exception. I mean, do you feel you could handle kind of just about anything now, you know, that could come your way? My wife and I were talking about this the other day. She goes, she looks at potential jobs when she's looking. She's not now, but when she's looking at a job, she takes a really careful look at her own CV to see if on paper the things line up 
with what the requirements are. And she always laughs at, you know, if I have, uh, if you need a PhD for a gig, I will go into an interview and try to convince them why I don't have a PhD, but I, I could tell you why I have life experience just the same as a PhD or why you might want me. I'm not, I'm not uh, terrified by the idea that maybe I won't get something or I just feel like if I, I'll, I'll figure out a way to make it work that I can sink my teeth into a, a concept, a job, a thing if I want to. And I agree that comes, I think there's something nice to be said about. Uh, I won't say that I've always been totally on top of my game, but in general, I don't, the things that other people worry about disruptions, I feel I can handle. Ethan's commentary, after seeing me on the um, Oprah show, and he, he repeats it to this day. That happened in 1989. He'll say, oh, I saw, I saw Stan in on the Oprah show, and he was the smartest person there, and he pissed everybody off. And so I finally said to Ethan, I said, Ethan, why does that matter to you so much? I mean, Ethan's a guy who headed an organization, had to get people to give him money. He has a certain sense of, mm. his father was a rabbi. He has a certain sense of propriety that you need to get people on board. Uh, if you're going to legalize marijuana, you know, you have to convince people. And it did, you know, take a decade or two. And, but... I said, Ethan, haven't you learned that I don't think that way? The fact that everybody gets upset with me sort of doesn't penetrate my brain. I mean, I'm aware of it, but like I don't go home and worry about all over it. So I've got two questions for you. Why are you so concerned that everybody like you? And I guess the correct answer is, well, that's your gig. You know, that's how you've done what you've done. But how come yeah. you haven't realized that that's not how I think? Why aren't you, after knowing me all these decades, alert to the fact that that doesn't matter to me so much? What do you think his answer would be? Um, Stan, in, you'd probably be a lot better off, wouldn't you think, for everything you wanted if you didn't piss everybody off? And then I would say, well, Nobody does exactly what I do, present a whole different model of addiction. And, you know, every once in a while, Nick Heather, who's a kind of a gruff Englishman, um, he is a psychologist. And every once in a while, he says something really insightful. He goes, Stan, and your whole personality is geared up to what your role in life is like. Uh, you obviously, you know, you, have, you make jokes about things. You create conflict and you don't let it overwhelm you because that's what your whole presentation in life enables you to do. And you've done something significant that nobody else could do. So, you know, I guess the, the best argument you could make is that we're each geared for the role that we have in life. And I guess the lesson to take out of that is you want to get those two things in line. I mean, at some point you want to say to yourself, well, what is it exactly that I'm trying to accomplish here? And is my personality and presentation and skill level in line with that? And, and you know, talking about negative, my brother committed suicide late in life. 
I, I, he didn't have that lined up. He was a little offbeat like me, but he worked in a kind of corporate IT world and it didn't come off. He never really, people liked him, but he never really squared that circle of getting who he was in line with what he needed to do in the world to get by. And that, so I'm aware that you have to meld that somehow if you're, uh, you're, and it took you a while to kind of line up your ducks so that what you were doing was in line in keeping with where you wanted to go. Would you say that you had that alignment issue, kind of like aligning the tires in your car? I do. And I also will say that the coronavirus pandemic is a good indicator to me. There's a there's a dimension of having your life kind of figured out or in the right direction that I think is, um, if you can measure it somehow, it's crucial. And it's that if things go totally differently than you thought they might go, that can you stand on your own two feet? And, you know, the coronavirus pandemic was not good. And I had favorable compared to many others, uh, situ life situation. And some of those were things that were just good moral luck that had nothing to do with me. But a lot of it, my response to it was just me being me and having the outlook that I have. And I think I was able to do a pretty darn good job in that, during that pandemic and the uncertainty, making sure that my family was doing okay, everybody's nerves were cool. I could assure that no matter what happened, I could still make money. I could still go out and do things. I could still be productive and that we could all still be happy. Sort of like a stoic outlook on well, things. Well, in a way you're talking a little bit like what I said, the Norman situation was, you've had some ups and downs in the past. So you're a little bit better on Rocky flying than a lot of people have. That in fact, that's what, that's where I'm, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go on. That's where I'm headed is that um, he got, Mark Norman got to a point where he was just a workhorse. And I think he did it in, with good balance and making good friendships and connections and living a good life along the way. A goofy one, as you might say. I think he makes fun of himself sometimes, but a good and balanced one. And he's so centered on his purpose that when the pandemic hit, you can imagine performers out of anyone really took a hit. At least musicians can kind of, you know, you can play music and, you know, whatever the people are doing, ask for tips or just create an album. I guess comedians could kind of do that, but he's a stand-up comic. And people try to do the whole, like, oh, I'll do stand-up over Zoom thing, but it's just not the same. He went out and immediately started doing, uh, he'd round people up on the streets and do a social distance in Central Park, get them together, pay some kid with a camera to film it, and then he'd do a stand-up set to people in Central Park. Or he would go and, totally illegally, but he'd go up on a, a rooftop somewhere and do the same thing or try to, you know, and it wasn't for money or whatever. He was pretty much all set in that arena. He just wanted to work on his chops, be moving and doing something. And that the, during the coronavirus, he said that whole thing happened and uh, people were so unsure. Everyone was off the streets. Are we all going to die kind of a thing? And then that shortly after that is when he found out Netflix wasn't going to accept his uh, stand-up special. Luckily for him, he had already been doing this kind of piecing together of, hey, Man, hey, kid in the audience, or you're a photographer, or someone would write him on social media. Uh, I do photography. Any any offer that any 
anyone ever gave him to, can I film your show? So yeah, sure. And they'd give him a VIP ticket and have him film the show. He took from all those clips of different stand-up shows, um, one full piece spliced together, one full comedy hour. That's how he turned his, this is during coronavirus. This is how he kept himself busy. And that's how he turned this, well, the world is not able to leave their house anymore. Um, Netflix said no to my special. I'm not able to perform my craft. Yet, that's when he put together this hour special that gets millions and millions of views and has made him much more famous than ever. And doing that kind of work and podcasting and all of that stuff, he just knew that he had to continue his purpose. It's not like he wasn't used to living during periods of time where he felt like he had no control over things. He's already lived through that. And he remembers that, you know, he's able to kind of remap and figure things out. I mean, you, you could make, I don't want to take it too far, but you, I mean, right now uncertainty is our future, you know, the yeah. it's returning and who knows what's happening and whatever. There's a million uncertain things. In a way, his reaction to the pandemic is, and I think you're in my reaction to it, is among the, the best ways to react to it. And we've had experience in uncertainty. It's not like either of us, if we lose our main gig or if he lost, he didn't have a main gig, um, you know, would be completely at sea with no direction and no ability to navigate. It's almost as though it, when you're raising a child today, which I know you are, and I have grandchildren, somehow uncertainty and coping and being flexible has to be built into the package along with the purpose. You have to know what you're pursuing. You have to know what your skills are. You have to develop skills. But recognizing that uncertainty is just going to be a part of the ocean that we're sailing from here on in is a key element in survival. So now I'm going to ask a few open-ended questions just for people to think about. I'm actually going to do it in reverse order than what I, what I planned. He still drinks. He still, once in a while, used drugs. And in his past, he felt that drinking and maybe using drugs was part of a problem that he had in his life at that time. You might ask, like, who was in a better situation? Someone who has had a problem with drinking and completely stopped now, or him, since he still drinks and even probably drinks too much sometimes or gets drunk and drinks to intoxication sometimes. I have to say, given that given that he's grown up with all these traumatic situations. So he's got a house that continually was robbed. He was mugged in the streets. Um, he, he had, uh, his parents had to go work and leave him at home with some, this person that he doesn't know, but was wearing women's clothes. But, and so he didn't know how to make sense of the situation. Um, he, he was always at this tension. He wet the bed. <clears throat> he, uh, he, he got, to a point where he was trying his best to break out of the cycle that his parents had started him in, it, started him in and, but he was probably drinking too much. And that's one way you could look at the whole thing. And on the other hand, if you look at it through a developmental lens, you could say that throughout his life, every time he had problems, both, even if you looked at his parents being unavailable through that first lens, you could also say they had the wherewithal to, they knew they had to hire someone to take care of him. They knew that they had to work in order to afford the place that they were living. The person who was taking care of him turned out to be a role model. And maybe that's an unorthodox kind of a way to 
set up a role model situation, but he managed to do it. And Mark managed to take these times in his life that were difficult for him and pour all his energy into something that was purposeful. That was, that was his flight out of the, any kind of torment that he was facing in his life. I think he's in a much better position as a drinker, not even just a moderate drinker only, but someone who drinks more than maybe me or you and probably drinks too much on occasion. He's got a meaning in life and a purpose that I bet if he ever, if he gets into a period of his life again, that he says, well, maybe I'm drinking too much now. It would be nothing for him to, you know, to bring that down a little bit or to change course because, I mean, what kind of a course change is that? It's like turning the wheel slightly to the left when he's already I moved the ship. Well, I mean, uh, that's anathema what you're describing to the 12-step approach and the whole recovery movement's all about total abstinence. How do you arrive at an abstinence goal with a client or a non-abstinence goal? How do you determine that with a client? Me personally? Yeah, if you're That's working it. with a client yeah. and dealing with a drinking thing. Um, well, I make the conversation about alcohol one part of a greater conversation about life. Is that, is that what you mean? Is that um, too like existential so you, of an answer? In a way, you don't focus on the alcohol. You focus on the functioning. I, I think I know that's your You're story. kind of at a... Usually, get... I help people get to a point where the, they're thinking enough about their lives and what they want that the whole alcohol thing is maybe the least interesting thing out of the whole in the background. Yeah. Yeah. So like maybe, it, I mean, it's, that's not to say that I don't have the humanity or empathy. If somebody feels they have a problem and if the problem is drinking to go over those skills and solutions with them. Of course I do, but you know, opening up the, deal with anybody currently who was a full-time abstainer or recovery it outside of your you know clientele do i do like do i know someone you have a like friend that? who's in recovery yes and uh is that hard to work around with the person or 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 do you just ignore that thing or what no we don't ignore it but we even joke about it kind of it, i know there's one guy you kind of debate all these things oh bit. oh yeah yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're saying yeah yeah uh <laughs> no that that whole thing is like it's it's fun it's always funny to me because he thinks the way that i talk about addiction he thinks I'm saying everything that he believes. And then we get to the part where we talk about recovery. He's like, well, wait, recovery is good. <laughs> and, uh, and I think the same thing. I think he talks about life like it's this open experience that you have to put, you get to put the pieces together and figure out how you want to balance it. It's never completely stable. It's always forward moving. So you have to kind of conform and figure out and put and uh, keep, keep the balance. It's like a whole thing, this passing of time thing. And he talks about that and he talks about, you know, drugs not necessarily causing addiction or a lot of people who take drugs don't become addicted to them, but he still loves the idea of 12-step recovery or just recovery in, in general. I, I, I tend to think, I just wonder if it's a temperamental kind of a thing. Like he, I think he might be a guy that just likes categorization because it helps him make sense in his thought process 
I don't know. I, I guess let him speak for himself. I, I don't have friends <clears throat> recovery. I, I'm a bad. That's not going to work for me. You know, old Ann, and she's 92. Somewhere along the line, she stopped drinking. But that doesn't count, you know, it was a yeah. thing. And she still drinks, you know, she'll take some wine with some water. It's not like a big thing with her. But that, um, and I actually have a line that I sometimes use, I've used in my life with people. Well, at the beginning of my memoir, um, scientific life on the edge here, let me uh, hold it up. I have a friend who's a bartender and he thinks about his drinking and I dedicate, you know, I have a quote to the a book at the beginning and uh, it goes like this. Um, Stanton's younger bartender musician friend after the friend has had a couple of drinks and Stanton has had one beer. I don't care if you drink less, you drink as much, but take care of yourself. You quit an hour forever or you mix a match. I just want you to be okay. Bartender, I know that and I appreciate it. And then I say to him, um, of course, if you join AA, we're through. He starts laughing and says, I know that too. So, you know, if he doesn't want to drink or he wants to cut back, you know, I, you know, I'm, I just want him to be okay. But if he ever joined AA, you know. So I say that to people. You really, kind of, you, if you've got a drinking issue, you might want to try to come to grips with it. Because if you join AA, you and I are through. Maybe that's not much of your, doesn't affect your thinking, but that's what's going to happen. So maybe you should try and deal with it short of going that route, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I was, um, well, I'll save that for another time. I just want to mention that I, th there's this idea that drinking is that kind of a thing, it just inescapable in people's minds that drinking or drugs are that kind of a thing that you just can't go standard, a standard route with. This is what the whole concept of our podcast is about, where we're saying, yes, you can. Don't you see it all over the place? You know, so this, this story today is a guy who he couldn't be in AA or recovery. It wouldn't make any sense to him. That whole thing would just, he doesn't see himself as that. I think he might even believe, like he just doesn't have a dog in the fight. He might believe that there are people who just need that, but that's not him. Like I had a problem with drinking. And that's part of why you love him. You're looking at him and saying, recovery, he doesn't have a brain chip for recovery. Right, exactly, right. Right. And that's why I a love him. B, he's a good comedian. C, he's going to survive. So I wouldn't put that brain chip in him. I'd be the last one to do it. I think he the same thing goes with trauma. So you say, was he traumatized? It's like, what does that mean? You know, I th I think I put up there. It's like trauma's bad, and how many times do you have to utter that tautology? I mean, it's well, not our, our colleague meaningless. Ferguson. I, you know, his life is like unbelievable. And when I say, were you, tra are you, tra are you traumatized? And he just laughed and he said, oh, I've had more traumas than anybody, but no, I'm not traumatized now. <laughs> I'm just a person. All right, Stanton, well, that, 
Mark Norman, one of my favorite comedians. I hope people check him out. I'm tempted to put up a clip of him right now, but I, it's so just off the wall that I, I, just give I don't want to. Just give us a look at him so we'll all know who you're talking about. Can you do that? I'll put it up. Uh, well, here, I could do it right now. Let me show you the clip of him on that, uh, that show that I was talking about. New Day Cleveland. It is time for a little bit of a laugh. We need comedian Mark Norman in our lives. He'll be here at Hilarities this weekend. So welcome here into the into the studio. It's good to have you hey, here. Hey, good to be here. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. I'm a little hungover, a little gay, but uh, just glad to be here with you, sister. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I'm very happy to be here with you, too. All right. I, I, Sorry, no. just hiding my erection. I, no. But, uh, yeah, no, I, this is great. I know you just left Slimans. Yeah, I had Slimans. So I'm really gonna be on the toilet later, but uh, boy best corned beef in in the Midwest if you ask me It's delicious. They, it's the size of your head. Yeah, yeah, and I ate way too much But uh, at least everybody there was very attractive. That's good. No, I'm kidding okay. but, uh, I'll stop it there. People can watch the whole clip on their own <laughs> The taste of his uh you know, you know what he looks like. We're talk who we're talking about, yeah. There you go. Yeah, I'll well, put he's not going to fit into that morning news slot. He's just going to run them around right. in different directions. The but morning they, news slot would be traumatic. So it's their problem, you know. <laughs> exactly. All right, Stanton. I think we've decoded another non-recovery human being out there in the in the zeitgeist. All right. Good talking with you, and uh, see you next. Let's see you soon.